Welcome to the special bonus episode of The Alaska Myth. I'm your host, Caitlin Armstrong. Last summer, I traveled to Kodiak to speak with community members about how the island's history has been memorialized from the 60s to today. One of the people I spoke with on my trip was Sophie Fretz. Sophie and I spoke in depth about The Cry of the Wild Ram, a play with a complicated legacy on Kodiak that we discussed in our last episode. Sophie played a lead role in the production's final run in 1992, the role of Baranov's Denina Knightsey wife, Anna. Sophie and I discussed Cry the Wild Ram, the rewrite that never was, and what she learned from playing the title role of Anna. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. When I got asked to do an interview like this, I always kind of jump at the chance because I really learn a lot by doing it. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, I kind of just wanted to start off asking, did you grow up seeing the productions of Cry of the Wild Ram here in Kodiak? You know, I heard of them like my whole life. I grew up hearing about them, but it was like way out of town. So the production happened in the summer, so it wasn't something that the school would have brought children to see. Um, So I didn't see it. Um, I just heard about it my whole life. And then I think when I was about 19 or 20, my sister, um, Valerie, she acted in it. And And so that was the first time I had gone to see it was when my sister was acting in it. At the time that I watched it, I hadn't really delved into my culture much at all. I was just kind of really on survival mode at that point. And I was um, just plugging along, trying to do life the best I could. And so I didn't really um, get an opinion of it, except for I just thought my sister did. She just was the most beautiful Anna, and she was just so lovely in it. I remember like when it was all done, when all the people walked up, and Baranoff was kind of at the center of attention and everyone was surrounding him, including the indigenous people. I remember at that point questioning how valid that actually was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you mean uh, at the end of the show when they're doing bows and stuff? No, and, or... just like the, the, the play ends and it's just the final scene is like everyone just kind of coming up to him, you know, and just kind of honoring him, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, so it was, that was the way that the play ended, was with everyone kind of honoring Ranoff and acting like they were friends. <laughs> That's, that is certainly kind of like an interesting image to end the play on. Yeah, <laughs> somebody's idea of it. <laughs> I don't even know who wrote the play, honestly. I've never... Um, I, I meant to kind of try to look into it and see more about it, but I just haven't. I haven't done it yet. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because this is the first time that I had heard of Cry of the Wild Ram. And like it's everyone that I have talked to about it who's not from Kodiak is like, oh, what is that? And everyone I've talked to about it from Kodiak immediately knows what it is. And so uh, from what I understand, it was written by a playwright, um, 
right after the centennial celebration of the Alaska Purchase. Uh, and I think that was also in a period where Kodiak was kind of rebuilding, from what I understand, from the 1964 earthquake. And a lot of the buildings, kind of the older buildings from that period downtown, were also being torn down. And so it's it's interesting, kind of the moment that the play came up in. And, and I actually read some of the... Um, like the dissertation of the playwright who put it together. And he was saying that the type of play that it is, is one that's supposed to draw in as many community members as possible to participate and also unite the community around a shared history. Mm. I mean, I, I wonder um, how well you think uh, the play accomplished that. Well, when I think of the play, like, it really did bring a lot of people together. There was a lot of camaraderie, as happens when you work in a play. You get you get very close to people. I was so young. Like, I was way too young to even be pondering the fact that the whole play was like a joke. It was just like a bad joke. Um, and and like so many bad jokes, it, it was played on the indigenous people of the island. When you grow up here on Kodiak, there's so many things that you just take in that are wrong, but you realize like there's not really a lot I can do about it. And so you kind of just make the best out of a situation. So such as the Cry of the Wild Ram, I think a lot of people knew that it was an incorrect history but there were a lot of local talent that could come and work and do this great production every single summer. So it went forward and it continued to go forward for a lot of years, <laughs> like a lot of years. My director at the time had like such a strong, powerful vision of rewriting the play the way that it should have been written. I mean, that was really interesting for me to hear when you were saying on the phone that the director was uh, kind of already had this awareness that there were problems with the play. Was that something that you feel like was widely known at the time, that the play was ahistorical or that uh, the way that it portrayed Indigenous people was problematic? I mean, was it that people knew that and they chose to move forward anyway or was it that that awareness was just like not there for people I think that it it's it's like right in between they knew there was something wrong and also there was no awareness so people don't like to hear about that kind of stuff it's very much easier to pretend that the guy came and did wonderful things than it is to stop and think about barbaric activities and then the fact that there's streets named after him and buildings and the park is named after him and um that's a hard thing for people to stomach which I don't really understand because I'm on the receiving end of of it but I have a lot of friends and people that I really love that really don't even try to understand why I would have a problem with the park being named after Baranoff or a play glamorizing him. So 
Yeah. What kind of reactions do you get when that comes up in conversation? You just hear stuff like, you know, well, everybody has those kind of histories. My own husband, um, as I started on my journey probably about 10 years ago, like he was kind of in on that page. Well, you know, there's there's conquerors and there's people that were conquered and that's just the way it is. And it's it's just a very easy way to look at it and categorize it and move forward past it. Um, so then when you have someone like going, wait a minute, let's open this book. Let's pull the book down off the shelf and let's open it up and let's really look at it. Um, it makes people very uncomfortable because then they have to deal with they have to deal with their own prejudice, which a lot of people will just say they're not prejudiced at all. They don't want to think about being prejudiced. And so so hearing individual stories, then it, it cracks open something that's like a hard nut inside people. They, and, and so when it's cracked open, it becomes like a really beautiful thing. Because then you have, you know, you have, an, like, such as my husband, you have an ally, a person that's like, will say, well, wait a minute. It's not just that easy. It's not the black and white story that we've all been told. Sophie talked a lot about her memories of the play. What do you remember about what the set looked like? There was a stage, and and a lot of the activity happened, like, in front of the stage and on the stage. Um, and they utilized, like, a lot of the landscape as much as possible. They would have the children, like, running down the stairs at times. There was people running with um, torches at times. Um, I heard there were also cannons. Yeah, they would set loose with a cannon. Um, I can't remember where or why. Maybe when they were going into Resurrection Bay or something. They set their their first touchdown. And um, it never really talked about at all about the, the battling, you know. But, and maybe maybe it touched on it, but it was just so vague. But, you know, the thought that they have to conquer people to, you know, be in the areas that they were. That it wasn't just some nice handover. <laughs> tell me, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, Anna's character and Anna's story? Yeah, I, it's a little vague, but I'll tell you what I remember. Um so I remember the first in the first scene that Anna came in, um, the chief was giving Anna to Baranoff. And he's a Kenite, so in the Kenai area. Um, and Anna came up and I had to I did like a dance. I just did like motions, you know, like we'll cook for you, clean, give you children, just that kind of thing. <laughs> It's so bizarre when I think about it now, just doing that. It was like, and I remember there was a lady and she was like, every time I did a different movement, she's like, she would interpret what my movement was, you know, and she will do this, she will, uh, she will cook for you, and she, you know, and, um, and then I went off with Baranoff and that was it. And, um, and, and I don't know like how that actually played out, but I know it played out wrong. Like, I know Anna being given away, given to Ranoff as, as his wife, as the daughter of a chief, getting given, given away to, to a man. Um, it just must have been a, an awful, awful story, which would, it would be really interesting to actually see it played out today because I think it could actually, people could probably do it justice. 
Sophie said there was another scene that still stuck with her, all these years later. So Anna is um, confronted by the priests about her relationship with Baranov and her baby. So they're telling her that she has to separate herself from sin. And she does not understand what that means. And in fact, I believe, like, I have a vague memory of, like, a scene where, in fact, they are saying that. And then they just kind of leave her hanging with, like, well, I have to do this, but what does that look like? Like, they don't give her a solution. Like, okay, so here's what we have to do. We have to marry you in the church, and then um, the sin will be appeased as according to our church and our religion and what we believe. So Anna, um, in that particular scene that I'm talking about, she she tells Baranoff that she threw Antipater over the cliff, and Antipater had already been found, and Baranoff is saying, we, we found him, and he's okay. She tries to explain to him that they told her she had to separate herself from sin, and that's why she had to do it. Um, the concept of that... Like, I just remember that, like, it just, it hit me, like, in a, in a place that I didn't really know was vulnerable to be hit. Yeah. Um, was it easy for you to relate to Anna? Very. I was shocked at how easy it was to relate to Anna and how easy it was to, to, to jump into that role. I think at that point, that was, like, probably my first experience with with seeing that there was something different about me being indigenous like it did create different things inside of me the things that the way that I think about things different is because I'm indigenous it was a very um touching role what Anna went through and to be able to portray and to really be able to feel the tears of Anna like flow down my cheeks you know did you feel that the play fairly represented her motivations? You know, no. I, I don't think that it even touched on an ounce of, of what Anna's potential could have been and what, you know, she could have done. She was, you know, kind of glamorized and um, it was a fun role to play, but I don't, I don't think there was a lot of truth in much of it. Mm-hmm. Other than... The fact that a woman could be given away at that point, and particularly an indigenous woman, and that probably the p- priests were allowed to harass her um, and try to convert her um, into something that she didn't understand at all. Yeah. So I think that was probably that was probably correct. Um, was there any point, um, like, during the play, either when you were rehearsing or when you were performing the play, that you started to see it in a different light? Knowing that the director, who just worked so hard, like, he worked so hard, and knowing that, like, his future goal was to rewrite it um, was just very eye-opening for me. He worked so hard and he did an amazing production and he wanted it to be completely different than what it was, which I just think is that's just, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. 
How do you think the play impacts the way that people in the community of Kodiak understand what happened during Russian colonization? Well, it's a skewed, it's, it's incorrect. So they understand incorrect history. And it gets, you know, it gets set in there. I mean, it's easier to accept that everybody huddled up at the end and it was all nicey-nicey, you know? Right. You know, if, if the play were to be rewritten or were have to been rewritten, what would you want to see it portray? Just the truth of what, what really happened. You know, I would love to have people... Just the general public in Kodiak understand um, what the indigenous people went through in the conquering of this land, you know, being enslaved and having our men taken away and women picked and chosen through and um, killed and just heartbroken. There's a, there's a word in our language that says it's just, it, is, it is far too sad to ever speak of again. And and you can't think about it because you have to get up and go forward. So that's what we've done. You know, we've got up and gone forward. And so it's not, it's, it's some of our getting up and going forward, such as my mom's, she got up and went forward. Her parents, the trauma that they portrayed on her, they got up and got forward. It wasn't pretty. My mom's wasn't pretty. Mine wasn't, it's not pretty. It's, it's just like we're doing the best we can. And then so to look at that and go, I would like to have compassion for that instead of just judgment. That would, um, that would just make for a lot uh, more peaceful cohabitation, you know, where, where as we are, you know, rebuilding our culture um, and integrating our culture into what's here um, already, like it would be just a fuller spectrum of what we could be. Like there's just so much more potential that is just, you know, uh, it's, it's just stifling, you know, to hear my little grandson say, you know, I want to go to bronze off or whatever you know however he pronounces it and I don't and generally speaking when someone pronounces someone's name wrong I always correct them and help them pronounce it right but I I don't with bronze off I just let him say it however he wants to say it because it doesn't mean anything to me except for um you know the trauma that my people went through um and that we're still you know working our way out of and trying and and, and some of us are, are not making it out like we have to care about our neighbors, what, whatever their story is, even if it's a story that makes us uncomfortable. We have to listen, and we have to let it break our hearts. If it's a sad story, we have to cry with them. And if we don't, then we're not doing our job as a human. Hmm. When you think back on the Cry of the Wild Ram play, how do you think of it now? I think of it as something that there is like great potential that that they they really could re rewrite it and they could really be educating a lot of people like across the board. Um, there's just endless opportunity to educate people 
or something like that. So I think about it as um, it, it showed what could be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just what has kind of your own personal process of coming to know and also reckoning with um, your people's history, with Alutic Supiak people's history been like? Well, it, when I grew up, it was not cool to be indigenous. Like, you didn't, you didn't claim it. And then when people found out about it, you kind of carried the shame of it. Um, so with the rebuilding of the culture, which started, like, in the late 80s, um, and right just shortly after that, in, in the early 90s, like, we moved away. I moved away. So I didn't see a lot of it, but I was kind of um, watching it from afar. When I came back to Kodiak... Um, like one of the first places I went was to the, to the tribe. Um, and I got my boys, um, their tribal cards. And that was really important to me. I didn't jump right in to the cultural community. And when I started dancing, um, I, I just would just cry. I would just sing our songs the best I could and dance them. And I just, I think probably the first five practices, I... I just sobbed through the whole thing <laughs> because it was just so it was just so powerful to be able to be there and to be doing that with with my people two of my family members and children of my 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 children's children were there and um, I was able to to really grab onto so much that was lost that I hadn't even really realized I was missing. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of The Alaska Myth. The Alaska Myth is a production of Rose Bay Audio. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Armstrong. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much to Sophie Fretz for sharing her story. You can learn more about our work at www.thealaskamyth.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, consider leaving us a review and stay tuned for our next episode when we explore some of the most iconic myths of Alaska's gold rush.